I'm Jane Z, and this is Farm to Future, the podcast all about eating better for the planet. Today's episode really captures the essence of farm and future. We're heading to Brooklyn, New York to an urban algae farm. Jonas Gunther is the founder of a company called We Are the New Farmers. They're on a mission to make the world's oldest food source a mainstream staple by growing fresh spirulina and shipping it to your door. If you've ever had one of those blue magic smoothies, you know, the bright blue smoothies, that's spirulina, otherwise known as blue-green algae. The algae contains a natural blue pigment, but its full form contains chlorophyll, making it this rich, dark green color. I actually tried some of the fresh spirulina in a smoothie. The consistency was lovely and it felt like yogurt. It actually added some creaminess to my smoothie. But I have to admit that afterwards my body felt a little jittery. And maybe that's from the energy kick that you're supposed to get. I learned from Jonas that Aztec messengers used to pack spirulina in their bags when they would travel between cities as a sort of prehistoric energy bar. And for decades, NASA has been studying spirulina because it's so high nutrition and requires such little land to grow that it makes for excellent spaceship food. It's one of those things that's so good for you and so good for the planet that I have to at least nudge you to give it a try. And if you like it, you can even buy a piece of the farm starting with a hundred bucks. Check the link in the show notes to invest in We Are The New Farmers and be a part of their story. And now here's Jonas. I grew up in a pretty rural place in a, in a small village and uh, my parents had like this huge garden. During the long summer months, we would pretty much every other day have uh, barbecue or like grill something. My father would put some steaks on the grill and my mother would make some potatoes and like do a little round through the garden and just pick up some vegetables and particularly tomatoes. I always remember mm. she had this patch of cherry tomatoes in her garden and often she wouldn't do anything to them. She'd just have a little bowl of cherry tomatoes on the table and we'd just grab them and they were so sweet and it was so, so delicious. Yeah, it gave me a, a big appreciation of actually being able to pick up your own vegetables in your garden. Mm, yeah, there's nothing like a fresh cherry tomato from the garden. Did you cook much as a kid? My interest in cooking really evolved a little bit later when I moved out. I quickly realized that that small village that I grew up in was a little bit too small for me. So I ended up moving a couple of hours away from home to a bigger city called Hamburg, which is where I did my undergrad. And I was in this really cool situation where I was actually sharing a kitchen with about 20 other people so most of the time the older kids would teach the new ones like how to make basic things like fried eggs or your dinner branch and share that with other people so like, this communal aspect is still something that I very much value and um, even though New York is not really known for hosting a lot of things at home because we all have such small living spaces we still try to gather friends as often as possible and like just share a meal together around the table or something that you make yourself. I spent a year studying abroad in France. And I just remember we would get two hours off from school for lunch every day. So I would cook lunch, I would make dinner. And probably half my time in France was just having meals with people. And that's something I think like so core to so many cultures. But somehow in the US, we've like 
forgotten a little bit about what it's like to sit around a table and eat. I was just mentioning Thanksgiving because the, the idea of bringing people together is also very much present in, in American culture. And I don't think that that's very much of an exception. We celebrate major holidays by gathering people, whether it's Christmas, whether it's Thanksgiving. Um, but even when we think about Independence Day and like hosting a barbecue with your friends, it's like always centered around food and bringing people together. I feel like it's so deeply ingrained in, in the human's DNA. Yeah, no, I think you're right. There's definitely a lot of traditions around food and around gathering. I think it's more so the day-to-day -day dinner times. I read a stat a few years ago that was like average meal times for UK was like 15 minutes for like a dinner time. France was like 45 minutes and US was like five minutes, something like that. There's something to be said about the more fast paced productivity mindset over here, though maybe that's changed over COVID. Well, I think there's a second component to that. That is, yeah, things get more fast paced and you don't always have time to share a meal with your friends or your family. But then there's also the component of like breakfast and making this something that's really a ritual for yourself and seeing food almost more as self-care on an individual level rather than something to be shared. That's something that we see with a lot of our customers that like there are people that create morning routines that really try to carve out this half hour in the morning, 45 minutes in the morning. It was just about themselves where mm. they take care of themselves. So it can mean that they prepare themselves a super luxurious breakfast and, mm. and really indulge in that. It can mean that they create this very functional and very nutritional breakfast that just gives them the fuel for the day. And, and others, it's just a hot beverage or a coffee in the morning. It's like your couple of minutes of, of zen, of like, this is time that I spend on myself. So just because food is enjoyed by yourself, I feel like it doesn't necessarily need needs to be something negative. It can also be a very good mode of like treating yourself to something good. Mm, yeah, that's so true. I, I like that perspective. Um, it's definitely true for myself. I have breakfast alone. I like having that quiet time in the mornings. So when did you start getting interested in the food world in terms of tech and sustainability? You know, if you ask me as a 22 year old, what are the things that you want to spend the rest of your life with? And um, the things that I noticed about myself is that I enjoyed cooking at that time enormously and it's like from not knowing how to make scrambled eggs to hosting dinner parties with your friends I was always growing things i was like having little cherry tomatoes on my tiny tiny balcony in hamburg i at the very least would have some basil on the windowsill at all times and would love to go to farmers markets or specialty stores and like just pick out new crops that i haven't seen before new vegetables new ingredients and just a growing fascination about food while also noticing that a lot of the things that I could buy were, weren't what I expecting, particularly the tomato that I mentioned in the beginning, right? Like we all know those, those cherry tomatoes that are just picked off the vine and they are super juicy and delicious. And then you go to your grocery store and you buy cherry tomatoes and they just don't have the same taste. They just are balls of water in many cases. I started asking myself, mm -hmm. why is that? And that's when I really went down a, a rabbit hole of everything that is wrong with our food system. And there's like enormous change necessary in, in this industry. At the same time, 
with my background in industrial engineering, I was deeply fascinated by tech and realized that that's not something I wanted to let go. I couldn't imagine just moving out into the countryside again and, and start a little homestead and grow uh, vegetables for a living. That's when I really put one and one together and it's like, hey, okay, tech and food and, and what else is going on around the world. And so I stumbled upon like those vertical farms, like this really cool articles and, and this is the future of food and thought that is something I really want to learn more about. And when I eventually moved to New York City, I just got a lot of access to those developments and to those innovations. That leads kind of then to, to what I'm doing today. I picked a particular topic that I care deeply about, and that is the carbon impact of our food system. Sustainability is something that a lot of people care about, but it's important to figure out what is your niche in this and what is something that you can really impact. And for me, that is climate change as in my opinion, the biggest challenge that we have as humanity. And I figured that there's nothing more important to work on than on climate change. Can you put into context, was it certain stats that you were reading or learning about with the food system? Like what specifically frustrated you about the current food system? I, I used this example of the tomato and it sounds always like a metaphor, but it was quite literally my starting point. I was like literally Googling why do tomatoes taste like water in the supermarket and then why do they not taste good and i came across a bunch of books uh, i forgot the title by now it's been several years but there's this book that just describes how tomatoes are grown on an industrial scale and i was like reading this and i was just horrified it was like nothing to do with how my mom would grow tomatoes mm. um and it's like it's such an enormous amount of chemicals that I use, pesticides that I use, land that is destroyed, and manipulation just for the sake of getting as many very heavy tomatoes to the supermarket as possible without consideration for you know the taste of it or the nutritional content. And that was the starting point. And then you can branch out and you realize, okay, so if that's true for tomatoes, then it's probably true for most other vegetables. So I learned about the nutritional decline in, in most of the foods that we that we see in our uh, stores today. I think there was a recent meta study that showed that, don't get me on these numbers, it's probably wrong, but like across the board, 20 to 30 most common vegetables decline of 20 to 30% of the nutritional value within the last uh, 25 years. At the same time, we see enormous use of pesticides of fertilizers that end up in oceans, all these ancillary processes that just have a tremendously bad impact on our environment, from killing the bees to destroying the entire ecosystem. Because of the way we farm, we need more and more land to feed more and more people, so we actually cut down trees all around the globe, which has major impact on, on climate change. And you could go on and on, and you realize the, the direction that we're heading towards is horrifying. It's like, it's not good for us humans in terms of nutrition and in terms of what goes into the food, but it's also not good for, for the environment. And then the, the last push kind of for me was when I learned about the impact of climate change on agriculture itself. So this kind of like self-fueling cycle that more carbon in the atmosphere also means that plants grow faster because they need carbon, right? Like they turn carbon into oxygen to produce energy. So if there's more carbon available in the atmosphere, they grow faster than they usually do. It's actually something that growers in indoor farms use to you know, boost the yields. And so you supplement some CO2. But if you think about it on a global scale, it means that any plant that grows outside grows faster than it used to 
without using more nutrients because they're not made for that. That's the great nutrient collapse. It's a great, great article in Politico about that. And it's like basically describing that we run into a major issue because when plants grow so fast, they don't get the nutrients. So all ecosystems around the world don't get the nutrients that they need anymore. That means every plant, no matter what something that we humans consume, whether that's vegetables or fruits, or whether that's grass for animals that we eventually hunt or eat or are part of any other ecosystem, they're declining in nutrients as well. It's going to be an ever-fueling cycle of nutrient decline and faster growth and CO2 in the atmosphere. So we are in this self-reinforcing wheel and we need to break this wheel somehow to figure out how the future of food could look like. Oh boy. <laughs> the first thing I thought of when you were talking about the nutrient collapse, I was like, oh man, the cows need supplements. <laughs> I, I do want to have a serious conversation with you about this because there's all these new supplement companies cropping up, partially because the FDA changed its rules, but you know, maybe partially because we aren't getting the nutrients that we think we're getting from the fruits and vegetables and plants that we do eat. Do you see a correlation in that and the, you know, supplement industry growing? To a degree. I think the, the majority of people aren't yet aware of the fact that our nutrients are going down. I think people are very much in tune, though, with the fact that something's wrong with our food and they're trying to fix that in whatever means possible. I think this this increase in sales in the nutrient supplement industry is mainly fueled by the desire to improve your life and um, to prevent illnesses of any kind and to eventually like fix yourself because you realize something's broken and you realize, okay, whatever I'm doing in terms of food is not enough and I need to find other ways that are enhancing my body and giving it the nutrients it might be lacking. Nutrition science is complicated. It's very fuzzy. It's very difficult to isolate specific causations and saying like, okay, uh, if I take more iron every day, then my brain is going to grow 20%. It's like those correlations are very, very hard to prove because we never really know, is it, is it the iron or is it something else in the environment that's causing that? So we really only have large long-term meta studies, which are extremely expensive and take a lot, a lot of time. While nutrient supplement companies are not necessarily better on that end, because when one small study comes out that shows that there's a correlation between those two things, potentially in one specific case, well, they blow it up and use it for marketing purposes and say something like, this thing is curing cancer, or this thing is preventing you from catching this disease, or this thing is going to boost your immune system. I am very much a traditionalist in that sense. I think the best thing you can do to your body is eat whole foods and get as many nutrients in as possible. That way, I don't think there's a need to get a lot of chemically derived nutrients unless you suffer from a specific deficiency, uh, which is something that your doctor can help you with. So spirulina... This wasn't your first idea, right? You actually set out to create some kind of solution around biofuels. Tell us about how you got into vertical farming. My journey into indoor farming really started back at NYU in 2016. I already had this idea in my head. There's something with tech and food that I want to do. So when I arrived at NYU, I had this amazing opportunity to actually live out some of those ideas and, and use a giant makerspace to just build whatever I had in my mind and got a lot of support financially as well as just like figuring out 
problems. So we started building systems. We started building um, small-scale hydroponic uh, solutions. We eventually built an entire little farm inside of a commercial refrigerator, like one of those refrigerators that you would find at any uh, 7-Eleven or bodega. Just open the door and there were plants inside. And eventually we got a grant from the university to build a large experimental farm in, in the School of Engineering. So vertical farming is out there. It's growing and it's it's very popular and provides some answers. But the issue with it is that so far it really can only grow leafy greens. How do we actually make this leap to the viable solution on a larger scale for a variety of different crops? So let's do something that none of the businesses can do. Let's do something that's completely foolish and just try to really push the boundaries as much as possible and try to implement a lot of different things to see what works. For those listeners that are not familiar with vertical farms, vertical farms are those stacked shelving units with plants on each layer and then you have grow lights above. And one of the issues that you have with those farms is that you need a lot of energy to operate them because there's a lot of light, but the plants are not able to absorb all of this light. So you end up with a lot of your energy basically just wasted. So we came up with the concept of, hey, why don't we grow something alongside those plants that can make use of the stray light that's not been absorbed by the plants. And a friend of mine then introduced me to algae, to microalgae specifically. I've never heard of microalgae before. So he was very much involved in the cultivation of algae for biofuels. That is something that started in the late 2000s and like way earlier as well, but like there was a real big boom in the, in the late 2000s around the research of microalgae for biofuels and like ExxonMobil running newspaper ads, like we grow algae and turn them into biofuels and that kind of stuff. So there was a lot of technology that was already developed for that purpose and a lot of research that had been done but always with the purpose of growing algae for biofuels. That's when something clicked in my hand. I was like, wait a moment. Like, so you can grow microalgae for biofuels very efficiently now. And you can also grow microalgae for food, but no one has used the new technology for that yet. So let's mm. look into combining those two things. And let's put this into our farm and see if we can grow microalgae alongside those vertical stacked layers of cilantro and parsley and kale and whatever we were growing. Turns out that part of putting them together into the same farm wasn't the greatest idea. It didn't work that well. But actually using this kind of technology to grow microalgae for food, but using the enhanced technology for, for biofuels, which basically means much higher efficiencies, much cleaner, much purer product, plus independency from whatever is going on around you in terms of the climate. So you can grow it in Canada if you want to, despite normally this type of algae needing really warm tropical climates. So that long story basically led to us starting a company growing microalgae in the heart of Brooklyn. Can you paint us a picture of what the indoor farm looks like? So you walk in, do you have like rows of shelves of the, the microalgae growing or, or tubs? Yeah, generally speaking, there are many, many different ways of growing microalgae. And what we eventually settled on is a compromise between maximum efficiency and affordability and flexibility in terms of what we can do. So you also don't want to spend millions and millions of dollars to only have a small output. So we decided to go with the system that looks actually quite similar to those systems that you would find in vertical farms. So we have stacked shelving units with, with tanks 
that are completely enclosed but have grow lights and these enclosed tanks that's where we can provide the perfect growing conditions for this type of algae so you have like a dark green bubbling liquid which is full of nutrients um, that the algae needs if the dark green color comes from the algae you monitor the pH, you monitor the water quality, the water temperature, you have influence on the nutrients that go in. We remove the oxygen by putting in uh, atmospheric air, which contains a lot of CO2, supplementing CO2 for the photosynthetic process. So we remove the oxygen by agitating water. And yeah, and then you have rows and rows and rows of those tanks, which all have cultures of this algae inside. After a short amount of cultivation, these tanks are ready for harvest. And all that happens is that we take this water that's inside and run it through a bunch of filters to make sure that we really just filter out the tiny algae organisms. And talking about micron-sized filters here, like they're super fine. So we run them through filters and we end up with a dark green paste. Very similar in texture to something like hummus or maybe a tomato paste dependent on how much water content you still have in there. We can scoop it out with a spoon, if you will. And, um, and yeah, and that's the that's the product. So the first time I heard of spirulina, it was at this hippy-dippy salads and juices shop called Life Alive. And they had this bright blue spirulina smoothie. You were saying that pure spirulina is actually dark green. So what's the blue stuff? Is that just food coloring? No, it's not food coloring. It's actually um, one of the natural pigments that, that exists in spirulina. Okay. So spirulina is also often referred to as a blue-green algae okay. because it contains both blue and a green pigment. Um, the green pigment is one that we all know from plants. It's called chlorophyll, very powerful antioxidant responsible for some part of the light absorption. And then there's the other pigment, which is called phycocyanin, which is blue. Some would call it sky blue. It's a, uh, a natural blue pigment, and it's used in many, many food applications. Apart from being great and making things blue, it's also a very, very powerful antioxidant. And when you get blue spirulina, sometimes also called blue magic, to arrive at that, what you do is you remove the green pigment, so you end up with just the blue pigment. It's, it's a bit like going into some of those romaine lettuces that have like red and green coloring and you just remove all the green pigments and you're like, look, this is half translucent and a half red romaine lettuce. So it's like, yeah, it looks cool. Um, no question. <laughs> Pretty fancy. Also cool for Instagram. But I don't know from a health perspective if that's necessarily the best thing to eat on a regular basis, especially if you're looking for the nutrient content. But whenever you process something like this, A, not only are you removing the antioxidants, at least some of them, you also use some chemical processes so you don't know what kind of things actually end up in the final product. Mm, so we have one more thing that's great for Instagram and not so great for everything else. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it makes it makes great unicorn lattes, no, no question about that. <laughs> right. But um and there's nothing wrong with wanting a unicorn latte every once in a while. But when it comes to an everyday basis where you really care about your nutritional content, maybe try a green unicorn latte next time. Mm, yes, there you go. You said antioxidants is a, a big nutritional value of spirulina. Are there other nutrients in there? Yeah, so spirulina is extremely rich in a variety of nutrients and minerals. It's been a very popular nutrient supplement for over 40 years 
NASA has been doing studies on it because they consider it one of the best foods for long-distance space travel because mm. it can be cultivated in such a small space, but also provides such a high degree of the nutrition that uh, astronauts would need on, on such a mission. USDA and the United Nations have both proclaimed spirulina as one of the best foods for the future because it's so rich in nutrition, but also can be safely administered to children at a very young age. It is uh, specifically very rich in iron and zinc, magnesium and potassium. Particularly iron and zinc are two minerals that are, uh, when you follow a vegan or vegetarian diet, you often are deficient in those two in particular. So where a lot of our customers are vegans and vegetarians looking for a way to make sure they get all the nutrients. It's a great source of plant-based protein. In our product, about a third by weight is plant-based protein, and it's a complete plant-based protein as well, which means it contains all the essential amino acids that our body cannot produce itself, which is not as common in plant-based proteins. Um, yeah, and apart from that, good source of B vitamins, the antioxidants, the phytonutrients, um, and particularly fresh spirulina is highly absorbable. That means when you take a multivitamin pill, for example, like a little capsule or something, your body can't absorb all the nutrients that quickly. Like your body is used to like a little super concentrated pill like that. And even though there's a lot of nutrients in there, most of it will likely go and just pass through. Each individual spirulina cell has like a very, very thin membrane around it. So and they break down pretty quickly, which makes harvesting, by the way, very difficult because you don't want to break mm. it. But it also means that your body can absorb them very, very quickly. And most of your nutrients are getting absorbed very early in your digestive tract, sometimes even in the stomach, which leads to a lot of customers reporting that the moment they eat it, they get immediately like a little energy boost. Yeah, because the nutrients get immediately into your bloodstream rather than needing a long time to be broken down. It's a very, very fascinating organism from a nutritional perspective and also from a sustainability perspective. And we just try to find ways for people to make it easy to actually use it as well. The way you describe it, it's like, okay, like I'm, I'm ready for my spirulina. It sounds like the ultimate superfood. <laughs> um, how does it taste? That's a good question because some of your listeners might be wondering like, oh, I tried spirulina a while ago and it's like, oh, this, this is so fishy. This is so weird. I don't like it at all. And yeah, that's true. Like, if you buy spirulina as a powder, if you go to Amazon or Whole Foods or something and buy like either the pills or the powders, spirulina is rather nasty. <laughs> it's actually quite <laughs> disgusting, to be honest. I don't like to eat it myself um, when it's a dried powder because it's it's really strong. People eat it regardless because it's nutritious, but like not because it tastes great. Again, when it is a dried powder. But what we do, and that's really our take on all of this is we don't see spirulina as a nutrient supplement we see it as a whole food we see it as something that doesn't need to be processed into a powder and if you're local and if you grow spirulina um, in the united states there's no need to dry it out you don't need to dehydrate it to make it shelf stable hmm. our product is fresh our product is perishable like any good food like good food needs to spoil at some point otherwise it's not good food so our spirulina doesn't have at all the the beard yucky flavor that you know from the powder. I think the best way to describe the flavor is mineral water. 
um, you barely taste it at all. Uh, if you give it to someone with a strange palate, they would say it has a little bit of a minerally flavor because it is so rich in you know iron, magnesium, potassium, all those minerals. So you can taste that. But what you don't get is the fishiness. Uh, the texture is, is very rich. Like if you use it in a smoothie, it's almost like adding some yogurt to it. Makes it really rich and creamy. If you have it by itself, it coats your mouth almost like egg yolk. So it's a very rich and very pleasant mouth feel. Despite not having any or like no large amounts of fat, it's really just the protein and the water bonds that that do that to you. So it's a very low caloric food that still gives you the mouth feel of something that's very rich. Um, interesting. And so tell me a bit more about the sustainability aspect of it. You said it's like a very nutrient dense and doesn't require a lot of land. Is that what makes it such a sustainable? Um, also, it's it's not a plant. I guess it's an algae. Yeah. <laughs> we still call it part of a plant-based diet, but it should really be part of the algae-based diet. Right. <laughs> Algae, like spirulina, is the predecessor of most plants, so they're go. closely related. To the OG plant diet. <laughs> yeah. That, oh, should I kind of take that for for marketing <laughs> slogan? That's actually a good one. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> the OG plant diet. Yep, exactly. <laughs> we always use the term primordial. I mean, we think that is something that speaks to the nature of spirulina. Mm. No, so the sustainability part of it. There's so many ways of looking at sustainability. I think the core metrics that are important to us here and that, that we look and measure in, in our facility is land use. And that's something where Spulina is absolutely amazing because you can grow this in a very, very small space and have a very large output because it grows so fast. We have a tiny facility and we can produce a, a lot of protein, uh, which is very, very different compared to, let's say, animal proteins, which, you know, the animals themselves need space to, to roam. And then you also need all the space for your inputs, like your feed, which then takes up a lot of space that often, particularly for soy, means deforestation. So that's the metric where spewing is amazing, regardless of how you cultivate it. Um, the second thing is water usage. Fresh water is, is a resource that's not readily available in many places around the world. Um, New York City is a exception. We have a good amount of fresh water in, in New York State, but uh, if you think about California or really around the world, fresh water is scarce. And um, despite being an algae and growing in water, you can recycle a lot of the water and it's not lost. It doesn't evaporate because we have those closed systems. After each harvest, we can basically measure the nutrients that are still in the water and then add more nutrients to it and reintroduce it to our systems several times. There's no need to, to toss the water. At some point we need to switch, but like still the per 100 grams of protein amounts of water that we need are significantly better than compared to any outdoor crops or uh, animal proteins. And lastly, the carbon aspect. So spirulina is fabulous because you need to give it a lot of carbon to actually grow. We give like carbon to, to spirulina in the form of sodium bicarbonate as well as atmospheric carbon. And we could potentially even add more to it because of the short growth cycles. You actually have a very, very low carbon footprint. We did recently a life cycle assessment of our operations. And unlike many other foods, there's a clear pathway to actually getting spirulina to be completely carbon neutral, which is not true for any other foods really. Like mm. we haven't really solved the question of how do we scale 
carbon neutral solutions in food. How do we actually produce food without emitting carbon? There are very few ideas. Regenerative agriculture is one of them. But even the people working in the industry are saying like the biggest question is how do you actually scale this up to the degree that we need to? And microalgae is one of those things. I believe if we would have politicians that would say, yeah, in the next 10 years, we actually want to get to carbon neutral. And if there would be a lot of money to put things into action, uh, microalgae would be one of the most viable paths to actually get us to significantly reduce the carbon emissions in, in the system. Algae are often one of the things that people look into when it comes to carbon sequestering and everything that we do in our operations considers the carbon footprint of what we do. Whether that is the, the way we ship, which is not optimal right now, but it's something that like, as we scale can minimize and which we try to offset right now. Yeah, I, I noticed in your online checkout process, there's the option to make the purchase carbon neutral, which I thought it was so cool. It was like under a dollar. I'm like, no brainer, done. When you say like uh, using spirulina for carbon sequestration or lowering your carbon footprint, would you just like deploy a massive amount of microalgae and, and put it into the waters? Is that safe to do or would that cause other issues in the ecosystem? There, there are multiple sides to this, right? Like, we won't just throw algae into the ecosystems because they already exist. There are like thousands of different species of microalgae, and like some are good because they're like the plankton that, that swim in the ocean and feed large and small fish. But then some of them are also bad. Like, many people are familiar with the algae blooms in, in mm -hmm. uh, the Gulf of Mexico and in other parts around the world and create dead zones because they basically absorb all the nutrients and, and just take over the entire water ecosystem. So the way you have to think about this more like how do you actually put the algae to use? How do you create something from the algae once they absorbed all the carbon that is there to stay? That can be as food. That's what we try to do and we try to make people eat more of it and make this as convenient as possible for people. That can be in the form of creating plastics from microalgae, like the companies that create shoes from algae, get some sort of polymer foam, uh, which is pretty cool. There are companies uh, that work on turning algae into building materials like concrete. You know, just growing it is one thing, but you need to find an application at the end of it to replace something. Because otherwise, um, you just end up with a, with a green biomass, and then it's dead, and then it decomposes and releases CO2 back into the atmosphere. So you want to find a way to store it or use it. I think there are many applications for the product already, but there should be more applications in other areas, and a lot of people actually researching it and, and trying to figure that out. Hmm. Very cool. So lots for the future of spirulina. Last time we spoke, you also <laughs> taught me a little bit about the history of spirulina and where it comes from. And I'd love if you could share the stories you learned of how spirulina was cultivated and consumed in, I think it was Chad in Mexico. Yeah, there are two places around the world where spirulina naturally occurs. That is in, in Africa, like Chad, as well as in Mexico. And in both of those places, spirulina takes up a very important role. Like Chad, they're like sm small basins that form around the lake, which are highly mineral and are highly alkaline. And there are tribes around the, um, these lakes, and um, the Canembo tribe, that uh, have been known to harvest these type of algae and spirulina for long periods of time. So that's actually the starting point how the Western world rediscovered spirulina. And it's very interesting because it's a very ceremonial 
food for them. Only women are allowed to enter the lake. They believe that the lake turns barren if a man would enter this lake. Mm. When they have their harvest days, the older women stay outside. They're the guardians of the lake. And then the younger women um, go into the shallow parts of the lake and siphon off the spirulina and then dry it in, in baskets into some sort of cake form that they then use to make dihe, which is a traditional food for the Kanembo people that they use for pretty much anything, for vegetables, for meats, and some sort of uh, sauce component, and very nutritious, obviously. And then the other part of the world, which is Mexico, spirulina used to be a staple ingredient for the Aztecs, Lake Texcoco, which is the body of water that is basically where modern-day Mexico City was. It was drained by the Spanish when they arrived to make space for the city. And spirulina appeared there naturally and it grew for centuries. And the Aztecs uh, used to harvest um, the spirulina. And we know that because when the Spanish arrived, they realized how important this type of food was to the Aztecs. And they, they wrote all of it down in their documentation of the native people. They even tried it themselves and they described the taste as something similar to uh, the cheese in Europe, uh, which I find quite interesting. But then they drained the lake, so the supply of spirulina wasn't available anymore. But we know from oral traditions that spirulina was used for couriers that were running from the capital, Tenochtitlan, to, to any outposts. So it was some sort of like prehistoric energy drink, really, for them. It's not the form of a drink. Energy bar is probably a better word. So uh, it was like it was mixed with uh, corn, with beans, with other traditional foods into a little portable food option. And even today, we know that spirulina is highly valued in the culture and it's like it's part of the heritage foods and just that we don't think of it. When we think of Mexican food, we think of corn, we think of beans, we maybe think of epazote, uh, but we don't think of, of spirulina. But people are now rediscovering spirulina more and more, and um, there are more farmers in, in Mexico growing spirulina and incorporating more into their traditions than they used to. Are we going to see spirulina energy bars on your menu? <laughs> well, one of the things that we... Uh, like to do is we like to keep the spirulina as fresh as possible. Um, mm -hmm. There are a lot of companies that work with the dried powder and turn it into a variety of different things. I think there's a space for that, but our philosophy is let's keep this as unprocessed as possible and um, come up with foods that really highlight the freshness uh, of the product. Mm. I want to ask you a fun question to cap it all off, which is you said this <laughs> phrase and you wrote about it where you said the future starts in our imagination. And I love that idea of just imagining our way forward, right? So what do you imagine that we will be eating in the year 2050? Besides spirulina, of course. That's an excellent question. Besides spirulina. So we're only going to eat spirulina 100% <laughs> of the time. There won't be nothing else. Uh, wouldn't that be a sad future? <laughs> <laughs> we'll all turn green. Um, <laughs> now, so let's unpack that a bit because the reason why I said that, the reason why you're referring to Finding Tomorrow and my like collection of little short stories where I try to paint a picture of how the future could look like, because I think we can only imagine our future altogether. We shouldn't be waiting for one person to come out and be like, this is the vision for the future, because when it comes to our mm. food, food has always been something that was created by a lot of different people. I envision that we will have lots of different small solutions to the problems that we're facing today, whether that is 
got bigger discussed topics like meat. Hopefully we will have small scale farms, we will have regenerative farms, we will have cell cultured meat, we will have meats that taste like meat and look like meat and cook like meat, but are made entirely from plants. I think we will have all of those and I think we should. And I think that's true for pretty much all of the uh, solutions that, we, that we're developing right now. It's so easy these days to like look into the future and be like, how's this ever going to work? How are we ever going to arrive at the point where things will be better than today? And I'm an eternal optimist and I see what people are working on today. And while the willingness from some of the politicians that are in power right now might not be there, the imagination and the creativity and the innovation of people is certainly there. We develop all kinds of solutions right now. We hear it, we are the new farmers, but also many, many other companies all around the world. And they all come up with fascinating new ideas. I like to think about the future as something that is exciting. And I don't want to follow the doomsday thinking about climate change. Like we always talk about climate change as either this way of like, we don't do anything and then the entire world's going to be on fire and like we're all going to drown at the same time or we actually do something about it and it's this super constrained future of we can't eat meat we can't travel anymore we can't have fun anymore there's so many dystopias out there and i want to believe in, in a utopia i want to believe in something better and i believe that when we actually implement all of these solutions that you know we see all around the world from just in general, being more in tune with, with nature in these things. And I think we will live in a much more harmonic way than we do today. I love that. that. Cheesy, I like the it? idea of having <laughs> options. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I, I think we need optimism. We need builders and dreamers and people who are designing their way forward. And I think your perspective, especially as someone who's an engineer and a startup founder, like already in the space to still have that optimistic outlook is, is really wonderful. So thank you for sharing that. As we close out, I just wanted to give you a chance to share with listeners where they can find your work and how they can stay in the loop with We Are The New Farmers. Yeah, so if you're interested in learning more about our company, it's called We Are The New Farmers. We are located in Brooklyn, New York. Um, you can find us online at new-farmers.com, um, as well as on Instagram and some other social media places, as you know. We are also currently starting a crowdfunding campaign. So if you're interested in owning a piece of the farm, uh, owning a piece of the future, for as little as a hundred bucks, you are able to actually take part of our future. You find more information on that on new-farmers.com slash republic. And then lastly, if you're interested in imagining our future together and having some thoughts on how the world should look like in 2050, check out Finding Tomorrow, which you can find at medium.com slash finding dash tomorrow. Very exciting about the crowdfunding campaign. Wish you guys the best of luck. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was really a lot of fun. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. Make good food choices this week, and I will talk to you next Tuesday.